Welcome to the Ethical Marketing Podcast. And today we're doing a special podcast to chat about Shan's new book. Thanks, Stuart. This is very exciting because it is finally book launch time. And I have my first book coming out on the 17th of February, which is hopefully when this podcast will also go out, called Buy Better, Consume Less, Create Real Environmental Change. So what made you decide to write a book? Good question. I feel like in the sustainability space, there are books that look at the science and the grand scale of the climate crisis and the problems. And then there are books that talk purely about individual action and a kind of how-to guides on how to reduce your plastic consumption, how to live greener, for example. And both of those types of books are doing really important jobs, but there's nothing I felt in the middle that is we're all doing our bit and we're all doing as much as we can. We all care about the planet. Why isn't it making a difference? And why isn't it changing things as quickly as possible? And I was just really curious about that because I was frustrated, to be honest with you. You know, I'm putting the recycling out every week and it's still piling up. There's still packaging coming from companies that I then have to recycle and I'm writing to my MP about issues and things aren't changing and we know we're in a climate emergency but then you know the pace of action is very slow so I wanted to write something that was really solutions focused really action orientated and that just took things a step beyond individual action and like the subtitle says showed people how to create real environmental change without heaping guilt and shame and extra work onto them because there's a lot of barriers to taking eco action. And I really wanted to explore what those are, how they work, and how we can overcome them to actually have a bigger impact as individuals. How long did it take you to write the book? I would say I've probably been thinking about the ideas in the book for the length of time that I've been kind of running Ethical Hour and doing this work, which is coming up to about six, seven years now. So there's kind of my own personal journey is woven in there a little bit about, you know, I used to be your typical 20 something fast fashion consumer who was buying new clothes every single week, wasn't thinking about the impact from a humanitarian point of view of who was making my clothes or the waste and, you know, wasn't conscious about plastic and and these kind of issues. And then had that light bulb moment and that awakening and, and left the corporate world to actually do this work. But in terms of actually sitting down and writing it, it's about two years solidly of writing. And what happened was I wrote the first draft during the pandemic so in 2020 when we were in complete lockdown it was actually quite convenient for getting a book written because you've got nothing else to do and then had my daughter at the beginning of 2021 as I just sent off the first draft to the editor um, the brilliant Ellen Icon Publishing and she edited it while I was caring for my newborn and then I essentially rewrote it actually in 2021 because I'd written the bare bones of it in the first draft but then what we did was go back through it and really put in those actions and those solutions so there's a lot of case studies in there about boycotts that have been really successful or petitions that have really made an impact and the kind of action that we can take and then I wanted to make sure that everything I was talking about was backed up with something people can do because I think a lot of the time and actually when I explored what are the barriers to eco-action one of the really significant ones was that idea that we're too small to make a difference and we can really feel like that and it can get in our way so I wanted to make sure that everything in there comes with really practical advice that people can follow so they can kind of take it as a menu of options they can pick it up and read through 
and then come away with an action plan for how they're going to have an impact. Can you tell us a little bit about the key themes of the book? I'm trying to take people on a bit of a journey, really. So we start off by looking at greenwashing, which obviously we talked about in episode one of the podcast in quite a lot of detail, but really exploring those seven sins of greenwashing and what they do to us as consumers, so how they mislead us. And then we dig a bit deeper into how advertising works. So the fact that it does work on a subconscious level. So even if we are trying to be quote unquote conscious consumers, we are being influenced all the time and we're being pushed to consume. And actually part of our biological makeup is consumers. You know, that's how we survived when we were back in kind of caveman days. We needed to gather resources in order to survive. And we never really evolved the ability to regulate that and to stop that. So even though the way we consume and what we consume has changed, our fundamental makeup psychologically has not. And obviously advertising, as many of the listeners of the podcast will know, works on a psychological level, works on a subconscious level, and often plays on our insecurities and our fears and our feeling that resources are scarce and that we need more, more, more to feel good, to feel happy, to be socially accepted. So I really wanted to kind of lift a lid on the advertising techniques and also the techniques used in store to get us to spend and obviously online as well. So things like charm pricing, bargain bins, you know, why do these things work? Why are we trapped in this cycle of consumption so that even when we want to be eco, we find it really difficult. And then once we've kind of established that, it's almost giving people permission to realize that it's not our fault that we're over consuming, but we can still do something about it because we know that consumption is the leading force behind the climate crisis so in order to tackle that we have to stop consuming we have to change the way we consume obviously the title is about buy better so it's ethical consumption as a foundation but then above and beyond that how do we move psychologically from being consumers to being citizens and how can we take back power there so then once we've kind of explored the themes of why we're over consuming and what we can do about it we move into the political and the kind of challenging corporate power section. So, you know, these global giants, we hear all the time now, don't we, that stat that 100 companies are responsible for 71% of emissions. Well, how do we actually challenge those companies? How do we get them to change? And how does the politics all feed into that? Because we know, obviously, that big oil are lobbying political parties to make environmental policy in their favour and things. So, It's very, very easy to feel too small to take on any of that when it's system change that we need. And actually, it's dismantling a lot of that and showing people how they can have more power when they think as citizens rather than consumers. What would you say your hopes for the book are? I really hope that people reading it will feel inspired, but also actually empowered to go and do something. I'm aware at the moment that there's so much doom and gloom in the climate space and it it is a hard place to be you know it's hard to care about the climate crisis because it's much easier just to put your head in the sand not think about it and not worry about it and that's partly one of the barriers to eco action that I explore but it's also really difficult to see what we can do and how we can make a difference without burning out without spending loads more money or loads more time you know fitting eco action into the daily life and I think I was just really tired of seeing people 
get so caught up in that guilt and shame and anxiety cycle about the climate and wondering what they can do and then complaining that the politicians aren't doing anything and getting stuck in that mindset of, oh, nothing ever changes. And obviously a few people have read the book already. Um, the team that helped me do the indexing and the social media team at the publishers. I've been very, very fortunate that Icon are very hands-on and they really believe in this project as much as I do, which has been just wonderful to work with them and, and their passion. And actually all of the team have said to me, it has changed the way that I shop. It's changed the way that I approach things. And that for me is the most meaningful thing. And that is the outcome that I want. Even if only 10 people read it, those 10 people go on and create some change. That's going to have a positive impact. Obviously, I hope more than 10 people read it. But I hope that that translates into action for people and doesn't feel overwhelming or scary anymore. Have you got any advice for people who are maybe thinking, I've got a really good idea, maybe something within the ethical marketing sphere? And I'd really like to write about it, but I don't know how to take those first steps. Can you tell us a bit about how you went about that? That in itself can actually feel really overwhelming, you know, to sit down and decide you're going to write a book. It's a it's a really big process. But actually, there's a lot of people behind bringing a book to life. Obviously, you can go down the self-publishing route, which isn't what I've done. So I can't really speak to that experience. But the process of formulating my ideas and pulling them together and really making coherent arguments was made so much easier by having a really good editor and having a team behind me and even just the confidence to put this out into the world is quite scary at the other end when you finish to think right that's my ideas and a decade's worth of work basically going out into the world what if people think it's rubbish but actually you've already got a team of people behind you who are backing you who have invested in this project who understand what it's about and are doing some of the promotion and things for you so I personally would definitely recommend working with a publishing team and that actually makes the process smoother in many ways because you start by just putting together for non-fiction you put together an outline of what the book is going to include so you have to have fairly coherent arguments you have to have start middle and an end you usually it depends on who you're pitching to and things but you usually have to have the first chapter written so they can get a feel for your writing style but actually it's not like fiction where you have to sit down and write the whole thing and then pitch it to publishers you can pitch the idea to publishers with a certain level of coherence and things in your book proposal so I would really really recommend to anyone that's thinking about it to take that leap and to start working on a proposal and I think one of the big benefits of doing this has been the clarity it's brought to my thinking so obviously I'm hoping that this is going to go out into the world and make a real impact and it's been great in terms of reputation building. Again, the team at Icon have been fantastic at getting PR opportunities and getting the press interested in the book, which is great. So from that kind of reputation building professionally, I'm hoping there's going to be big benefits there. But in terms of editing and editing and editing your own work, you go through several rounds of editing while you're writing. And then once you've submitted it and then it comes back and then again, and that just really helps to clarify what do you actually believe in and what actually are your ideas, which obviously can then be scary to put that out into the world. But I think there's so much value in that process itself. So I would highly recommend to anybody that's thinking they've got a book in them to pursue that and, and go for it. 
is there anything you took out from the first edit or anything you thought, oh, I'll maybe keep that for the second book? Or you just thought, oh, I'm not sure this fits in anymore when you were writing it? There was a lot that got cut. The first draft is very different to the book that is going out into the world, that's for sure. But actually, I think the things that have stayed in are the things that should be in there and the things that didn't make it actually don't need to be in there it also makes you very aware of how you structure your arguments and how you present things and I know personally I was over explaining a lot of things and actually just needed to get to the point a lot of the time so I don't necessarily think there's anything in there that that should have stayed in I'm also not sure about book two yet either because I'm quite interested to see what impact book one has in terms of changing mindset and developing some of these ideas and there's quite a lot of different things in there there's ideas about how we shop there's ideas about us as citizens and the impact we have politically and there's quite a lot about how big oil are lobbying and having a very negative impact on the climate whilst greenwashing so there's a lot of different themes that could go forward into book two but the pace of change is so fast in the climate space at the moment you know, even since I finished and submitted the final draft, we've had COP26. We've had all the pledges come out of that. We've had things like Shell bow to the public pressure and cancel their investment in Canberra oil field, for example. So we're starting to see a lot of impact already. So it's really exciting to be part of that and to be putting something out about how we can have an impact at this point in time. But I think when it comes to sitting down and writing book two, the landscape in which I'm writing that will be very different to the landscape in which I was writing book one. So it will be interesting to have a think about which themes carry forward and which ones are kind of hopefully job done in many ways. That's really interesting. It hadn't quite occurred to me that some of the stuff you wrote about two years ago could be so incredibly out of date by now. Yeah, and I think that's one of the benefits, again, of working with a publisher, because you have got that ability to go back in and and put things in. So there were a few things that changed between draft one, draft two, and then the final draft, where we went back and just made a few edits towards the end and said, actually, we need to put something in about this. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is the role that advertising can play. And I know we've talked about this on the podcast, and you've had Richard from Stop Funding Hate, and we've had some really good practical examples of how advertising can influence public perception on social and environmental issues not just on how we spend our money and that's one of the things I really dig into particularly in the context of big oil and the lobbying and things that go on and then one of the things that happened in May which was just before I submitted the final draft was that Amsterdam became the first city in the world to ban fossil fuel ads on the public transport system so that was then a really solid example of how action can happen and it can start to regulate these activities and what's going on. So we were able to go back because we hadn't gone to print. We were able to go back and add that in and obviously work with the editor to make sure that that flowed seamlessly and, and was in there as a positive case study. So it's really interesting, actually, because obviously I started writing this in January 2020 and then it went to print pretty much January 2022. And obviously the journey and the change that's happened in that time has been really interesting to watch. Unfortunately, we've been able to go in and update the material and make it as relevant as possible to the time that it's being released. And do you think the pandemic has changed how we think about a lot of these environmental and ethical issues? Definitely. I think it will still take a bit of time to see how that plays out and how that turns into action. And that's Obviously, the thing that I'm most interested in is the solutions focus. But I think in many ways, the pandemic was that wake up call. 
And we saw that we are so connected with nature that we can't just keep using it in the way that we do and not expecting that to have consequences. I think we became really aware of our own connection with nature on an individual level in that during the lockdowns, if you had access to green space, you could get outdoors. You know, I'm very lucky. I live in a beautiful area of the countryside, so I could go walking along the river and things. And it was the thing that saved my mental health in that time. Equally, we had a lot of people with no access to green space, and particularly in that one lockdown where you could could only go outside for one hour a day. I think people really felt that loss and that lack of connection with nature in ways that we maybe haven't before when we haven't slowed down to that level. So I think there was partly that. Obviously, we saw a lot of stories about air pollution clearing up temporarily and emissions dropping temporarily and things which then spiked right back once we sort of came out of lockdown and resumed business as usual so I think we've seen that we actually really do have an impact here and we do need to change what we're doing and that it's not impossible actually I think the thing that was really clear to me as a result of it was in the context of COVID how quickly we can change legislation We can change regulations, we can work together and we can make change happen. And actually, that's the same level that is going to be required to tackle the climate emergency, which is already happening. And we actually need to get ahead of that so that it doesn't become a really acute emergency in the way that the pandemic did, which obviously already is in some parts of the world. But for those of us that don't live in those parts of the world, we still need to have that mindset now and start tackling it now. And I think it's shown us that actually we are able to have an impact. How excited were you to receive your first copies? Oh, so excited. And one of the real highlights for me just personally was obviously my daughter was born slightly early, uh, just sent off the first draft and then she was premature. So the book's dedicated to her. And then obviously she's been kind of newborn baby in a sling while I've been typing it for ages and she's nearly one now and actually it'll be released on her first birthday, which I had no control over that decision. That was, you know, publishing decision, but has worked out really nicely. And the box arrived while I was sat with her. So we were able to open it together and have a look and she picked one up and started flicking through it. I thought there's a little eco warrior in training. That was a really proud moment for me. And that's a moment that I'll definitely treasure. Were there any specific influences on you when you were writing the book? I drew on a lot of different campaigns and examples where things have been successful. So things like Stop Funding Hate. And Joanna Pollard is a campaigner who ran a campaign around keeping Kit Kat fair trade when Kit Kat said they were going to pull out of the fair trade scheme. And obviously that would have a direct impact on the income for farmers. She ran a campaign around that and she very kindly agreed to be a case study for me and did an interview with me. So I really tried to go out and find examples of people who were doing this stuff on the ground, making change happen and share some positive campaigns to really inspire people that they can make a difference. So there are a lot of different influences along the way of, you know, small businesses that are really embracing the circular economy and showing the big brands how it should be done. Um, ethical our community members that are really embedding impact into their businesses and the work that they're doing campaigners like Joanna who are just really really working hard to raise awareness get the word out there and try and create that change so it was just really inspiring to actually talk to those people and I came away feeling much more hopeful when I very first started writing the book the first draft of the first chapter and this hasn't stayed in but it was about 
a lot of the things that were going on at the time, the Australian wildfires in January were the worst they'd ever been. And there was flooding in Bangladesh and there's all sorts of things going on, which sadly are a regular occurrence now. But it felt very acute at that point in time that it was just all over my newsfeed all the time. And the first draft of the first chapter did feel a little bit doom and gloom because I was reflecting on all of that and talking about the need for action now. And we ended up cutting that because we made the decision that actually we need to keep this positive. We need to keep it solutions focused. And everybody kind of knows that stuff now. You know, we know we're in a climate emergency. We need to move the dialogue on to what do we do about it? Um, And that was a really positive mindset shift for me. And I think it's stripped out all of the doom and gloom that could have been in the book and kept it really solutions focused. And then in terms of inspiration, it allowed me to go out and seek out people and campaigns and organisations that really are being action and solutions focused. So that was actually really joyful to do because it showed me that the answers to this problem are out there already. They're already happening. You know, we often talk about technology in the future or, you know, things that don't exist yet or things that are way too big to implement yet and are really complex and then actually going out and speaking to people that are already doing this work and they're doing it at a grassroots level and it's having an impact just really re-inspired me in the work that I'm doing and I hope it has that impact for everybody that reads it as well I think it's definitely a book for you if you're feeling kind of doom and gloom and eco-anxiety and and tired of the climate conversation I'm hoping it will re-inspire everybody. Thank you so much the book is out today usually have people listening in from up to 40 different countries. So could you remind us of the title and tell us which countries it's available in? Thanks, Stuart. So Buy Better, Consume Less is out on the 17th of February, pretty much everywhere that books are sold in Europe, America and Australia. Brilliant. And do you have any recommended booksellers? So it is available from all good bookshops and ones that don't pay their taxes. So it's totally up to you where you go to buy it but I have been sending people to bookshop.org because they support independent bookshops again another thing during the pandemic was everybody just really showing that appreciation for small businesses and I just think you can't beat a small independent bookshop if you're lucky enough to have one in your local area if not bookshop.org but it is also available on Amazon, Waterstones, WH Smith, anywhere you can buy books. Thanks so much. It's been so good to talk to you as always, Shan, and we will both be back soon for the next Ethical Marketing Podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here and in previous podcasts, please hit that subscribe button. It means so much to us. Thank you so much, and we'll speak to you soon. And that's it for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast was edited by Stuart Mitchell. The music was by Joe McCafferty. We look forward to seeing you for the next podcast.